Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Soccer Hour, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. I'm Ted Ramey. Let's not waste any time. We are now joined by Christopher Sullivan, American soccer player turned broadcaster. He is fresh off his coverage of the World Cup for BN Sports Worldwide, and he knows a thing or two about the World Cup, having been a member of the men's national team for the United States in 1990. Sully, I am officially in World Cup withdrawals. First, man, how are you? And second, how much fun was that tournament? Well, first of all, great to be with you and all the listeners, Ted. Yeah, I think that uh, it was uh, quite fun. You know, I think that everyone enjoyed it, uh, particularly teams like that tried to play the right way, that played entertaining football. And that's few and far between if, if we're seeing how more practical teams are because the results are what count to go through. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind is Mexico uh, beating Germany and uh, some uh, Something that's pretty fascinating is that four, four of the last five world champions went out in the first round. Yeah. Uh, the only time that they didn't was in, yeah, 2002. Uh, the 2002 version of Brazil with Carlos Alberto Pereira, they went through in 2006. I covered that one in Germany. But all the other ones, you know, Argentina, uh, not Argentina, I'm sorry. The other World Cup champions in the four of the last five had gone out in the next round. So uh, Germany kept that trend intact. And uh, it was more really about Mexico than Germany. I know that everyone was talking about the upsets and so forth, but I think that uh, uh, my friend Juan Carlos Osorio, who I spent a few weeks with before mm -hmm. uh, in the preparation in L.A., uh, executed a, a fantastic game against Germany. And they kind of ran out of steam. And for the first time, his hands were tied, I think, in that last game where he didn't change the lineup, where he maybe should have, he would have wanted to freshen it up. Uh, but he couldn't in that third game because they were on six points and they would have went out had he changed it and they didn't go through. Let's talk a little bit more about Germany, though, uh, again, because they were a team that I know the six months leading up to the tournament were not their best, but myself and a lot of other people kind of expected them to round into form, and that just didn't happen. So how did they go as being this team that people were saying, hey, they could put their B squad out there and they'd still do pretty well to a team that didn't make it out of the group stage? Well, they did use their B squad and young. They freshened up the team in last summer in Confederations Cup, and I was in Doha, Qatar, covering them. And really, they were the talk of just how amazing Germany was, how how strong and how deep they were with these up and coming players that were um, jumping into the lineup and not missing a beat. And I think what happens very similar to Marcelo Lippi in 2006 in South Africa, that team that he won with and that you fight with in the trenches and you battle with. It's hard for coaches to to move away from their team and their warriors. You know those those players that are kind of moving on a little bit away older. And, and you know the name. You know we all know who we're talking about. You know the Mullers of the world uh, world and Mezzanozzo that maybe isn't tournament ready with that dynamic pop that you need to be able to play in a short tournament. It's a younger tournament now, um, and uh, I think that they got caught a little bit of arrogance. You can see in the games leading up to the tournament. Um, having played in Germany, I always know the, the attitude that they always say friendly matches are just that. They're friendly matches. And they know how to round into form and ascend like all the big boys, maybe the best of any country ever in the history of the World Cup of being able to build through a tournament. And uh, this time they got caught. Um, decisions, you know, poor decision-making, and I think they were hammered. I was working with Carl Heinz Riedler, just a, freight, a great guy who won in 1990. And... Um, you know, at first there was a little bit of laughing and joking, and, <laughs> but you could see 
you could see it change all very quickly, you know, and, and it was a, a big, big problem in Germany and something that they didn't expect at all. But I think, uh, you know, Joachim Love signed a long contract right before this. Uh, sometimes you have to make sure that the coach has the desire that he can stay another four years or he's driven to be able to have that edge. And for national teams, you know, we've seen a few coaches that have had long-term, that have stayed with national teams for eight years. He's been there 12 years now, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's that's quite a long time. And I think so it has to do with the tenure, the longevity of, of being able to motivate a, a good portion of a golden generation and maybe not include the young players. But I'd be remiss not to mention that Leroy Sonny uh, was omitted, and he's probably one of the best young players, or the best three young players in world football. So I think that was a big miss. Again, we're talking to Christopher Christopher Sullivan right now here on the Soccer Hour KMBR 1050. Um, you alluded to the entertaining product we saw on the pitch. What did you see in terms of trends tactically that led to this being such an, an entertaining um, World Cup? Not just from the results, but I felt that from the, the actual soccer we were watching being played. I mean, England, they uh, you know went completely in the opposite direction of being a team that plays it direct and bombs it long and tries to find a target to being this team that built from the back with really aggressive passing and you know they would try and thread the needle but then suddenly they would get that attack going really quickly which is a departure for them and it just seems like a lot of teams kind of went a little bit out of their comfort zone and for us that allowed us to get some really entertaining back and forth play yeah well i think uh, england in, in particular you know you have a uh, a wealth and multitude of uh, continental coaches from europe and worldwide that are coaching there probably they've been able with the money that they have from the television rights they've been able to attract the, the top coaches in world football uh you know a good majority of them and pep guardiola there's a factor 11 of his players in man city were participating in the final eight in 2014 seven of his players at Bayern munich were in the final eight and seven of his players in 2010 were uh with his barcelona team so, you know, you look at the Mauricio Pochettino, Arsene Wenger, obviously he's been there for 20 years. Jose Mourinho coming in, though, I think most people don't like his tactics and, and lack of intricate, you know, beautiful, entertaining football. But there are great coaches in there that have done that. And, and we're seeing with the, the England under 17 and the under 20s that there's a great generation and, more importantly, their balance, you know, where they can blend um, all the qualities that you need to be a comprehensive team, meaning that you're good on standard situation set plays in corners they've always been good in aerial duels and uh, mastering those qualities but they're better as you mentioned playing out of the back are they at top level playing out of the back i don't think so and that's where they got caught when they came up against a team that had possessed better quality but you know having players like Deli alley and raheem sterling and those speed elements are able to give the midfielders a fraction of a second more to be able to um uh, conduce you know to to conduct Right and, and orchestrate mm-hmm. and, and, and choreograph better movements as a team. So I think it was impressive for England, and also it's, it's showing the trend of what they've done with the 17s and 20s. And, you know, you look at some other teams, I think what we saw from a tactic standpoint is, you know, where in the past, like in the 1990s, when they said it was too negative and defensive, and, and the Euros in 2016, where teams would just pack it in, and it was very difficult to break down, you know, two lines of four, two lines of a five, if you will, um, what we saw is the execution and the perfection or, or near perfection of uh, swift, lightning-fast counterattack, you know, which made the game a little more high-octane and made it more interesting in the second half. So 
you know, you can go back in the 60s, there was a famous coach named Helenio Herrera that coached in Inter Milan. And he used to, in training, he would he would have these ex- exercises where you had to get to the end of the field uh, within three passes. So only three players could execute the counterattack, and it had to be as fast as possible. And we saw, you know, in some games like Belgium, mm-hmm. where they played a counterattacking football, but it was just magnificent. You know, it was breathtaking because it had all the elements that you look for in characteristics. You know, it had uh, subtle touches. It had impeccable timing and space and measured passes. You know, it had clairvoyance and, and so forth and creativity, uh, you know, at high speed. And then the culmination of being able to finish and have awareness on the field. You think of the step over from Lukaku in the game against Japan. So that's what I think was rewarding, those type of games. Belgium, Belgium, I think, went out and played football the best way. France, I picked them before the tournament to win, but I thought that they would have played a little more the French that I fell in love with, you know, back in the 80s, the Platini Jerez, Tigana Fernandez, that played under Henri Michel. That was champagne football. We didn't really see champagne football, but they're just so deep and so talented on paper. You know, when you can introduce players uh, like they do into the game, um, it's very difficult to beat. In Croatia, I think the world fell in love with Croatia. Yeah. The whole story and the way that they played football and obviously Modric and Rakitic and Brozovic, all those players, uh, it was uh, quite impressive that way. Two teams that I would mention, Peru, uh, that I love Peru, how they play under Flaco Gareca. They went out but the way they played, they played toe-to-toe with every team. You know, even when they played against Denmark, I thought they played the better football. Uh, they ended up going out. And also Morocco, I thought, played fantastic football. So um, I think as fans, we want to see teams and we fall in love with teams that play colorful, still colorful, creative, romantic football. But, you know, hopefully those days are not behind us. I think that's one of the things that surprised me so much about this tournament is like you alluded to, and again, we're talking to Christopher Sullivan right now here on the Soccer Hour, KMBR 1050, is that a lot of people did pick France to be in the final, but I didn't know anybody that was picking England and Croatia to be in a semifinal or anybody picking, um, you know, Russia to make a deep run like that. Or, you know, maybe they thought that Belgium could get deep, but they didn't really know if it would happen. Why, why was parody such a story this time around? Um, I'll qualify that by saying, is that because the technology, regardless of, money that these different nations have to allocate to their programs that the internet is making things a little bit more equal and in an extension of that is this parody going to be lost when they increase the field to 48 teams or will it just kind of double down on that parody because there'll be that many more teams involved no i think that's an interesting question but i think that it's a one-off you know the the, the real story of of why we saw a little bit more parody was the two brackets and the lopsided um competition in the brackets. There was the right side and the left side. The left side was loaded with all the best teams in world football. The right side was Croatia's side and England. And as soon as you saw that bracket, you know, everyone who was able to watch the early rounds of Croatia knew that they can go very deep in this tournament to semifinals at least, if not the finals. And they were able to get to the finals. And then it laid out perfectly. England will probably never see an opportunity you know, the next 20 years, like they just saw. I know that they have great generations coming up, but you got to remember that Holland wasn't in this tournament in, in Italy, you yeah. know, who's, who's won the World Cup, you know, a handful of times. Um, so it really lined up for that right side of the bracket, incredibly nice. And then you had all the heavyweights on the left side. So the bracket played a part in some of the um, 
balance from that standpoint. But I think it, 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 I really don't think it has to do with the internet. I don't think it has to do, and you know, several times on these broadcasts that you hear, say, well, you know, it's a country of only 3.4 million, or you know, Iceland 300,000. You know, half half the people in the country are coaches. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is that. If you have it in your blood and if it's in the fabric of the culture, you can play football. No one like, for example, Uruguay, they've won two World Cups in the 30s and the 50s. Belgium, I remember in 86 with uh, Enzo Schiefel. It's a footballing country, you know, just like Poland. Size really has nothing to do with it if there's a concentration uh, in within the culture that that's what they do. Otherwise, people would say, like, America's Cup with sailing. Why is New Zealand so good, you know? How come Australia is not better? It's a bigger country. Or how come, you know, uh, these other massive countries or Brazil, why are they not better? And why is Larry Ellison hiring all New Zealand people <laughs> to ride his $100 million boat? Do you know what he told me when I had breakfast with him one time? He said, because their grandfathers were fishermen and their grandfathers were fishermen. And they grow up in the water, you know. That's, it's in their blood. It has nothing to do with the population. It has to do with, you know, are you growing up with a football on your foot? And, you know, when you see these countries, we had, what, four European countries in the semis. The South Americans went out. They haven't won a, a World Cup on European soil since 58, right, with Chile and Brazil. Um, so we're seeing some trends as in that these are very dynamic short tournaments where you're playing tons of games in a short amount of time. And some of the teams that come out flying with flair – you know, creative mm-hmm. uh, and, and really exquisite football. You know, it's the second and third game where they're tapped. You know, they can't recover. And all that specialness that we see, sometimes you can't keep that continu- uh, continuity of level. And the Europeans are uh, week in and week out in Europe, so they're more primed to be able to play in these kind of tournaments, particularly the ones with younger squads. And that seems to be the biggest trend. That is the younger man's game now. We will continue this conversation with Christopher Sullivan and we'll be joined by Jimmy Conrad coming up next on the Soccer Hour. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour here on KMBR 1050, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We are continuing our conversation with Christopher Sullivan. Um, In terms of looking at the big picture, they said in the States that the TV ratings were down, and I I understand because the United States weren't playing in it, that was a factor, and they also said that the time zones were a factor, but 40,000 people showed up at Avaya Stadiums to watch the watch parties. Social media was trending with um, people People yeah. talking about the, the games constantly. It seemed like it had a greater place of cultural prominence this time around than it ever has before, even though the United States wasn't a part of it. So what's your take on that? Because I I, they, I get that the TV ratings were down, but to me, I had more people, uh, just people who were not traditional soccer fans, more people into it than ever before. How, how do I wrap my head around that or kind of try and juxtapose the idea of TV ratings being down, but the cultural prominence being greater? Well, I think that cultural prominence is greater. And, you know, there's, so, there's a, a plethora of ways that you can... Uh, you know, view these type of games. And I think that you have streaming, and I don't know if they track all of that. I saw that Fox said they had in the $2 billion when they were talking about total streaming and cumulative. Wow. <laughs> and I know, yeah, I know I know that uh, it might have been a little lower than that, but it being sport, when we were just in the quarterfinal, now this is being sport worldwide, so it's going all over. It's not coming in the U.S. It's not the Miami being sport. And uh, they have the best of the best of, uh, you know, the the, the uh, 
broadcasters coming in there, Richard Keyes, Danny Gray, you know, Bobo Vieri, the, the, you name it, Paul Scholes. But they had $1.2 billion just right at the quarterfinals already cumulative wow. of people watching, you know, which is huge. And um, I think that when you look at the United States, it's a micro, microcosm of um, the world because we have so many ethnicities and we don't need to find the casual viewer that uh, is just picking up, like picking up interest in the World Cup. There's such a, uh, I call it the Buena Vista Social Club of football, <laughs> right? the best seeker within the United States. We have so many authentic, uh, real football fans that week in and week out, they can watch any game around the world. They can watch Serie A, they can watch La Liga, and they're astute and sophisticated. And those are the fans that are watching and keeping up on top of it and also with um, social media and so forth. So just from what I read on social media, you know, it seemed huge uh, from that standpoint. And it was intriguing as well. Because you, the storylines, you know, Germany goes out. Argentina, who, you know, any everyone always roots for Argentina, even when they came through in the 4-3 game, because you have the best player on the planet. You know, you got Maradona, Diego, doing what he's doing in the stands. <laughs> and yet, you have to, you can't afford, you can't, you can't get the Piti Higuain, Tibala, uh, Messi, uh, Di Maria, Cunaguero. You can't get them on the field together. They haven't produced a good midfield since Riquelme, uh, Riquelme Aymar, Veron, you know, Biglia probably shouldn't be there, but Ever Benega played halfway decent. They don't have great defenders. And so you're looking at one of the greatest footballing countries that oozes football. That You know, when you think of football, you think Argentina, you think Brazil, you know, these type of countries. And to see Argentina play uh, in that fashion was, was pretty sad. You know, it was disappointing. So that also made the, you know the the storyline very interesting when you saw Argentina go out as they should and I think that the best four teams were there when it came down to the semis the best playing teams you know England belonged there I thought that Croatia uh, as I mentioned before played well yeah. and then you have France and you know France and Belgium as well all, all four of them were were pretty phenomenal and lastly, Sully, uh, well, A, I, I didn't know I was talking to a man who could be uh, uh, cognizant of uh, Buena Vista Social Club and uh, pre-revolutionary uh, Cuban folk jazz music. I'm very pleased. We'll have to uh, discuss this more while listening to them at, at some <laughs> point because I'm always, I'm always pleased when I find another fan. Uh, but uh, I guess there's a last one for hey, you. Well, just come in. Just come into your just come into your segments with a little Buena Vista I, social, and I tell you, your fans, <laughs> your fans that listen to you, they'll love you that much more. It's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, but uh, big big picture for the United States, since we they were all not a part of this. Is there a big picture takeaway that the people who are making the big decisions for the program? can look at this tournament and say these are the big points that we derive that we can apply to this program as big decisions are being made moving forward for what is hopefully a 2022 bid and obviously what 2026 will be the biggest sporting event in the history of the planet. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that question quite honestly because it's such a funny game. You know, this is football and you think about uh, under Bruce Arena in Japan, Korea, and the team upset Portugal, which was one of the top teams in Europe that time. And we're talking about Rui Barros, Figo, Deco, um, so many fantastic players, right? And um, then they go on to lose to, to Poland in the third game. Luckily get to the round of 16 
and then beat Mexico in the round of 16. And I didn't think they played well against Mexico. And then they lose to Germany. Mm-hmm. And I thought they played. I was so proud of the game that they played against Germany, that the handball on the line, you know, where we probably could have gone through to the semis. So, you know, you come off a loss to Portugal. So it's so up and down. Things have to happen. I think you can't look at the tournament and say, oh, this is what we need to do. We need to do what Mexico did. Well, Mexico has been players playing in Champions League in the last two years, you know. And they have Chucky Lozano that Barcelona was interested in, even Real Madrid and Pep Guardiola at Man City. So we got to keep producing our young players. We have, you know, players like Josh Sargent. We have Pulisic. We have Timothy Weah, the son of George Weah, who's mm-hmm. at Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, you know, we have a few kids in Schalke, one of them that I coached with the under-18 national team when I was a guest assistant to Omid Namazi. That's phenomenal. So there's a great crop of young players. Cab Ramos has done an amazing job with the under-20s. He's worked with Jurgen Klinsmann as an assistant. You know, I'd love to see him get the job. I, I've heard that even Juan Carlos Osorio is up for the job. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a short list. First, we have to get a coach. We have a new general manager now. So there's a lot of work to do. But the main thing is that we're pulling the best players. And actually, now thinking about your question, the best thing we can do is get the most talented, creative players, players that play the game the right way. Look at Peru, right? Look at look at Mexico when they're picking. You know, they probably could have picked a few that didn't get picked as well. Yeah. And, you know, you got guys like Hugo Perez here in the Bay Area that, you know, I was fortunate to play with on – on the national team and played several times here with El Farolito and, you know, consider one of the best players with Tab Ramos as well. And I think he's got it right when he picked players for the, the under 15, the under 18, the under 20s. You pick the players that are comfortable with the ball, players that understand the game, the players that have it in their blood, you know, and you build a team from talented players. So I think we're starting to, you know, uh, recognize those players, players like Tyler Adams who plays yeah. in New York. Um, you know, I coached him a little bit when I was with the under-18. Fantastic player, loves the game. And he's done, it's transferred over to the national team as well. And, and, you know, you have obviously the guys that are starting to play in Germany and Europe. Get more Americans at a younger age abroad um, because we have great, talented kids. You know, we just need the right coaches as well that understand these kind of players, that understand, you know, all the pockets and hotbeds, and they know where to dip in, and they have the right Rolodexes and connections with people that understand the game, they can say, okay, this is a player. And I know that he could play with the national team. You know, and, and, and you have to put in the work. There's a, Juan Carlos Osorio was telling me, you know, Sanchez who plays with Colombia, um, he said he was in a park in the west side of Cali in Colombia. And he said, I saw this guy playing in the park. I went over to him and talked to him. And he said, yeah, I'm a midfield, midfielder. And he said, I don't think you're a midfielder, but I think you'd be a great defender. He took him into Atletico Nacional, then he went to Ajax, and now he's with Tottenham. What? 50 million or 16 million. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm talking about. You've got to have that eye. Yeah. You know, that you can go see someone and say, okay, this guy can be a national team player. And you have to, you know, put in the work. And I think we have several great people within the country. Um, I think we have some of the best coaches that are doing the work on the youth side. They're very talented. They give all of themselves. They have their heart. So, you know, they just got to work together and keep trying to develop and develop players. And especially when you see those special players, embrace them, right? 
and encourage him and make sure that you push him the right way. Sully, always a pleasure having you on, my friend. I hope to see you out at Avaya Stadium soon. And as always, it is an absolute pleasure talking football with you. All right, man? Well, great to be back home and hope to see you soon, my friend. Always a pleasure. That is Christopher Sullivan, American soccer player turned broadcaster, fresh off his coverage of the World Cup for BN Worldwide. Now it's time for us to be joined by the one and only Jimmy Conrad. Of course, American soccer player. Now he's turned into a broadcaster. He's come to the dark side uh, to join people like myself. And of course, he is the, uh, the king of content for the soccer world on YouTube. Mr. Conrad, what's going on, man? How are you doing? Uh, doing great after that intro. And uh, thank you for having me on the dark side. Yes. Really appreciate it. Yes. Well, you know, it, it is so much sexier over here. I, uh, I don't think we talked about this last time, man. So I'll ask you now, has it been hard for you to make that shift to being a media entity? Because I've talked to other former players about this. And it's like once you cross that line to where you were, you know, you were one of the guys in the locker room, but now you're one of the guys that's talking about what's going in the locker room. Was it was that hard for you or was it just like, hey, man, this is what athletes do after their careers if they don't want to go and join the real world and want to keep on, you know, talking about <laughs> sports for a living? Yeah, how much time do you have? This is a pretty loaded question. I'm going to say that following my retirement, and I retired due to concussions and, you know, it was a bit of a shock. I was trying to recover from my concussion. I had a headache for three months straight. And it was just in everybody's best interest, uh, mine in particular, to hang them up. And so that came as kind of a shock. And so one day I was trying to recover from an injury, and the next day my whole career was over. And everything that I had known, my whole identity was wrapped up in being a professional athlete. And, and my parents knew me as that, and my siblings knew me as that, and my friends knew me as that. And that was my social standing. So when that gets taken away from you, as abruptly as it did for me, it was very hard, and I'll be honest, I was sobbing uncontrollably when it happened. Uh, you don't really know how it's going to impact you until it happens, and I'm sure every guy goes through it, whether they want to admit to it or not. Mm-hmm. And after and after I had gone through a little bit of that grieving process, kind of like, okay, what do I do next? Now, I might be a select few in the league that was doing stuff in the media already. I'd already written columns for Sports Illustrated and ESPN. I'd had my own radio show when I was playing for Kansas City. Uh, I'd already had some chops in that area, so it was a natural progression for me to go into the media and join the dark side as you were. I actually want the, uh, the Darth Vader death march next time I come on. Um, <laughs> so everybody knows it's my turn to come on the show. Right. But um, <laughs> it took me, so I, I did six months of Fox. I was in the studio. I was... Uh, doing color commentary, uh, you know, and then I just knew I wasn't getting enough repetitions. And if I was going to good, get good at this craft or any other craft, I was just going to have to start from the bottom. And, and that's a hard thing, I think, for players to accept. You're like, well, no way, dude, I was an all-star. I played in the World Cup. And and the sooner you can accept that nobody really cares. I mean, they think it's cool, but it, if you're not suited to fill a role and you don't have any experience in that role, you have to start from the bottom. And I think that's the hardest part of the transition. Um, and it took me about a year, honestly, to kind of shed what you were talking about, where I'd go to games as a YouTube personality or, you know, representing Fox, and and the guys don't talk to you the same way. You know, they're a little bit more guarded because they know that you could put that out there somewhere, and you try to reassure them that that's not what it's about, but they still have to do that anyway, and I, and I respect that. And that's a tough one. Uh, and then also not being, a, just being around and being a relevant guy on the field anymore. You have to forge your own identity again and start over and, and – there's a lot to mine here, uh, Pat, but, but ultimately, it, it just takes some time. And, and I've actually done some stuff 
with the players union, I've talked to uh, a lot of the reps and, and a lot of the younger players that are coming up at the rookie symposium about these issues and, and that, that there's guys like me that are ready to help them if they need it. Now, here's another loaded question for you, being as how you were a member of the 2006 squad for the World Cup. How painful was it for you to watch in real time the United States not being a part of what was the greatest World Cup of, you know, what people, you know, near our age can relate to? I mean, that was that was the tournament for the ages. How painful was it to not see the Stars and Stripes in there? It was painful and shocking. And in, in some ways, it's still painful and shocking. I still can't wrap my head around the fact that we weren't the fourth or fifth. We weren't even the fourth best team in our region. We got fifth or sixth. I mean, it's crazy to me that we could even let it get to that situation. So people reference the Trinidad and Tobago game a lot. Uh, for me, we shouldn't even have gotten to that point. We should have handled our business long before that happened. And so there were a few cracks, uh, you know, what we were trying to do. And, and I'm hopeful that it's one step back, two steps forward, because, because now it's really um, accelerated playing our young and friendly against France, against the eventual World Cup champions now, even from our young guys that we can play. And that we do have some talent here. And not to say there was any denial of talent. And I think that just accelerated the process. Now, speaking as a fan of the, the game in general, I actually thought the World Cup was in some ways more enjoyable because the U.S. wasn't in it. I didn't, yeah. have, I didn't have any, any no skin in the game. You know, I could just sit back and relax and enjoy the tournament for what it was and not have to get into, you know, starting lineups or any issues that's going on with our team. And, and it, it, in that way, it felt pretty good. So, um Again, yeah, I'm still pretty disappointed overall. That doesn't make up for the fact that we should have been in there. We will continue this conversation with Jimmy Conrad coming up next on the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We are continuing our conversation with Jimmy Conrad. Follow him on Twitter at Jimmy Conrad and on YouTube. Uh, If you uh, search the Jimmy Conrad, it'll take you to all his content. The latest thing he's got up is his top 11 things from the 2018 World Cup. Um, I I watched uh, that earlier. What what, what, just give us a sample of what were some of the things you're talking about there? What really stuck out to you? I know making a list is always difficult because for for me, it's always either way too long or not nearly long enough, but it's usually the former, and I have to edit down incredibly. What were just a couple things that really stuck out to you from this? Well, I would say that I made this list with regard to just talking points, right? And I left Diego Maradona flipping people off and, and <laughs> dropping that bomb. Um, so I really wanted to put that in. Like, for instance, Mexico and England both got a lot of hype during this tournament. However, they both were 500 in their record. So Mexico won their first two games against uh, Germany, which was uh, exceptional at the time because they thought, oh, man, the reigning champions, but it turned out Germany wasn't very good. Then South Korea, where they kind of squeaked by them, and they got smoked by Sweden before kind of getting a butt kicked against Brazil as well. So I just don't know how good Mexico really were. I mean, they had moments of brilliance, and I think Irving Lozano is going to be a star. No question, he already is a star. But then when you look at England as well, they won three games, and they lost three games. And the three teams they beat were Panama, Tunisia, oh, they played seven. They, they drew, let's say, with Colombia. But they, mm-hmm. they beat Panama, Tunisia, and Sweden. I mean, those aren't great teams, you know? So they didn't beat, like, a Brazil. They didn't beat a Argentina. They didn't beat Germany or Spain or any of the big, big nations that we associate with having World Cup success. Uh, they beat teams they, they should beat. And I guess that was a victory in itself because sometimes they capitulate against those teams as well. But but I don't really know how good England were. So those two teams, that's one storyline that I kind of explored. I also did my top 11 players uh, of the tournament, which 
gets a little dicey, you know. You don't know who to put because there were some great performances, specifically the, the captain for Sweden, uh, Andreas Branquist, who he looks like chewing meat. That you know he's got a dad bod, but yet he went out there and scored some big goals and and led his team to a quarter, to the quarterfinals, which is really impressive. So uh, there's there's him. I put him in my eleven, but you know you could argue that obviously some other guys should have been there as well. So I love I love. Just the subjectivity of uh, making a list and making your top 11 players. And uh, that, that, that's what I love about the YouTube platform. And by the way, everybody, you watch that at your own peril. I, I think I'm awesome, but, you know, I'll, uh, it's up to you to decide. No, so it, it, that's the beauty of the platform is I can go out there, I can speak, I have a place to speak, and I have an incredible audience. That they're really positive, and I, I really respect their opinions as much as they respect mine, and, and I love the community that I've built. What do you think of the parody-driven nature of this World Cup? And I've I've been asking around about this. Some people think that when they expand to 48 teams, it's going to kill it. Some people think the parody was just due to the bracket. I'm of the mind that the parody has kind of been a long time coming because even though nations can't all allocate the same amount of money, um, that the technology and particularly the Internet has allowed that dissemination of information to equally impact all these different countries that previously wouldn't have been able to have that information, not harvest it without the money. Now they've got access to it. To me, I think technology plays a huge role in this, but I'm just a talking head on the radio. So where, where do you uh, come in on this? Well, I'm a talking head now, too. Uh, so I would <laughs> yeah, but you, but you played. <laughs> so you've got immediately more validity. <laughs> That's fair. I appreciate that. I would say that I'm not the biggest fan of 48 teams. Uh, I think all the goal-scoring records are going to be shattered once it happens. Somebody's going to have a golden boot with 10 goals. That's it. You know, after Harry Kane puts six past Mozambique or whoever, that's going to creep in. But <laughs> there is something romantic about having India or having a Mozambique or a Sri Lanka or a Canada, right? That's a nice joke yeah. for Canadian friends. But them being in the tournament... <laughs> And giving them a chance to, to take a crack at the big boys, you know. And I think, as us Americans, we love March Madness. You know, we love the underdog story, and there's going to be plenty of those. But I do think it dilutes the talent pool a little bit, and I think there should be some difficulty in qualifying for the biggest tournament in the world. It only happens four years. I think you lose a little bit of the rigors of qualifying and how important that is. So I don't know. On one hand, I guess I can see... And I appreciate including as many countries as possible, leaving the money part of it aside. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm like, man, it, it, it should be tough to make this tournament. You know, that's why we have qualifying in place. So I'm pretty torn, and, and I guess I need to see one first. But I guess this is where I started to evolve my thinking on it. Why don't we do one in 2026, right? We'll have it in the States and, and Mexico and Canada. We'll have a 48-team tournament. And if it doesn't work, then I think... The, we, we have a ruling in place that if it didn't look good or if it's too diluted, then we go back to 32. Um, and, and I think everybody would be on board with that. But, okay, let's try it. And if it doesn't work, then we scale back. There's never, ever been any scaling back. It's always pushing forward and expanding. Um, and, and so that would, for me, it's like a happy medium to give it a shot. I actually don't have a problem with that at all. Now, FIFA and the other people involved with the money might have a different say in it. But actually, that's relatively sensible and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, wh with 48 teams, like you alluded to with March Madness, 
it, to me, if you get one of these lower-seeded teams that does take out a big seed, and now I just feel like we're doing a March Madness preview show, but, I mean, to have a storyline <laughs> like that, and it, to me it's not just about sneaking in, it's the idea of what kind of upheaval that could have on the Im- impact of the entire tournament. No, no question. Um, and thank you for calling me sensible. I don't get that very often. <laughs> so I would say um, that there is, I, I guess, if I saw a team, let's say Mozambique, so I don't know why that's stuck in my craw. It's fun to say. An example, but... Yeah, it is fun to say. But if they did it, if they, if they beat somebody, and they let's even Mexico, for example, they beat Germany, and Germany gets knocked out. It's a big storyline, but then Mexico crashes out in the round of 16, as they do. Like, how far is it going to go for Mozambique? Is that? I guess FIFA would say it from a, a philanthropic uh, ideal as opposed to the financial. That it, it, by Mozambique being in the tournament, that's only going to spur on more kids wanting to play. It's going to you know, light up the dream. Very, very similar to Panama, right? Panama got to the World Cup for the first time ever. That was their goal. That was winning the World Cup for them. But they finally got there. They sang the Panamanian National Anthem. Very exciting, very cool to see how the country responded to that. Uh, they scored a goal. You know, they lost their mind. I mean, that, those are really special moments that stand out for me as well. And I think that's what makes the tournament unique. But I still feel like diluting the talent pool a little bit is going to take away from the quality and the prestige in some ways of the World Cup. You're not really even getting into the top teams until you get to the round of 16. Now we could argue that kind of like that anyway with the round of th- or starting with 32. Because um, when I was a kid, uh, or maybe we were both kids, that uh, it was like 16 teams to get in, right? You could only get 16. And then they expanded it to 24, and everybody's like, whoa, what are they doing? <laughs> and then they went to 32. But this is a big jump. From 32 to 48 is a big jump. Yeah. I agree. It's, you know, I just, I always look at it as you, you follow the money and FIFA thinks and, you know, that they can get more more TV money and, like you said, more people potentially interested. And I, I understand it and I hope it leads to more parity. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the diluting the talent pool is definitely a, a valid argument. We can continue chasing that uh, as long as we want. I do want to change gears and get more into the the player mindset of you, Jimmy. And again, we're talking to Jimmy Conrad right now here on the Soccer Hour KMBR 1050. Things with the San Jose Earthquakes have been a uh, a little rocky as of late. Um, you know, I I do my best to try and view the team from my own unique viewpoint. I know all the guys pretty well, but I'm not a player. I travel with them, but I'm not fighting with them on the field and that kind of thing. Um, what is... What is the most important thing in your view of a locker room when there has been contention for it to be kind of smoothed out or if at least there's the view of contention? Because, I, you know, you look at sports, you know, Steve Kerr, the Warriors coach, he tells stories about that team that went 72-10. and 10. In practice, he socked Michael Jordan in the face. And the A's teams that won three straight World Series in the early 70s here in Oakland, they had fights in the clubhouse all the time. So we juxtapose these ideas of these, you know, kumbaya teams with the teams where guys are, are fighting in houses. Is there any making sense of a quote-unquote team dynamic, or is every team just just their own uh, individual entity in the locker room? No, I think a coach who's been with a team, let's say, for 10 years. I think Phil Jackson, I've read a few of his books, has mentioned this. Like, every season is different. Every collection of guys is different. Every player brings their own energy to the team. Uh, every player has their own motives as to why they're playing and, and what they want to get out of it, if they're chasing individual awards or if they're in it for the, the team awards and, and, and winning collectively as a group. So, you know, I think every team is different. So to give you some contrast from my earthquake days, in 2000, we were the worst team in the league. 
and in 2001, we won MLS Cup. Yeah. So I can't really explain to you the, the hard – I mean, I can give you some overall differences, and, and mainly it was there was a better spirit in that group. There was more of a belief that things could get done, and we just couldn't get over that hump in 2000. We had some quality players, but we could never get into that rhythm that I think is needed and I, I love Lothar Ustiander as a coach. Uh, he did a great thing for my career. Uh, he eventually recommended me to Bob Gansler, who brought me into Kansas City, and that's where I really, really, really blossomed. Um, but, but when Frank Al came in in his first year, there was just a different vibe about the group. And, and we could argue that a lot of the older guys that were on San Jose in 2000 were out. And, and the younger guys got a little bit more... Um, not all the older guys, right? We brought in Jeff Agus, Troy Dyack came back into the team in 2001. You added Manny Lagos, Ronnie Eklund. So there was still a core guys, but it wasn't like they didn't have the same type of baggage that the other older guys had. You know, that they had been through the trenches in San Jose. They'd been a little bit jaded, and it just needed a hard reset. When you're in the middle of a season and it's going, it's not going the way that you want, it's really hard because I'm sure fights are happening, right? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, look at all these great teams, the A's and, and the Chicago Bulls, but I mean, every team is always scuffled, but, but those scuffles that look back now in hindsight is a positive thing. That's the one where, you know, if you've won two games and you've only beaten Minnesota United, it's going to look like, well, the team's falling apart, right? So it just kind of depends on the lens you want to look at look through. Um, it's hard. I, I think this falls on everybody, ultimately. Everybody's responsible for the performance of the team. You know, it's up to the manager to get the most out of the players, and it's up to the players to get the most out of themselves. And, and if everybody's working towards that, then you should be able to slide out of it. But, but you got to have a couple breaks. You know, I, I'm a, I don't believe in luck. I, I, I believe you should create your own luck. I think it's where preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes on both sides of the ball. So, I don't know, Ted. I, I, I'm frustrated for San Jose. Uh, I'm frustrated for the players and, and the front office and, and for the fans. You know, everybody wants it to be good, but I don't think anybody's not trying out there to, to give their best. It's just not clicking for whatever reason. And sometimes you got to shake the tree, and I'm not saying there needs to be any changes, but sometimes there needs to be some kind of internal upheaval. Or you just need to win a goddamn game, Ted, right? And right. I think sometimes that will give you give you the confidence that you need to, to kind of push on and, and – and give you that spark of belief that, that what you're doing is right and, and kind of reward you for all the hard work and adversity that you've been put through. Now, I'll say this first, quick, fans, and I thought about this before I, I got on the air. These are the games, or these are the seasons that when you do end up winning the trophy, and I do believe that San Jose will win it, um, I'd say in the next five or ten years, maybe ten is too long for you guys, but, but <laughs> there's, this, is a, this is a great place for the sport, and I think it's going to happen. It's just sometimes you need to toil in the dark places uh, to, to really make the winning taste and feel that much sweeter. So I, I encourage everybody to stay the course, um, that, that pushing through this will, will there'll be some rewards at the end of it, but you just have to stick with it. He is Jimmy Conrad. You can follow him on Twitter at Jimmy Conrad and on YouTube at the Jimmy Conrad. Jimmy, always a pleasure, man, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon and hopefully bugging, for, uh, bugging you for an interview again real soon. All right, man? Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Ted. That wraps it up for another edition of the Soccer Hour brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. A big thank you to Christopher Sullivan and Jimmy Conrad. I'm Ted Ramey signing off for the San Jose Earthquakes.